Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 6, verses 60 to 70. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of, the, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sherry, for reading that passage for us this morning. So we're going to talk about the, the teaching that was so hard for people. And I'm going to get to it in a minute, but just to kind of spoil it, uh, this is the passage, this is the chapter where Jesus tells his followers that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood if they want to have eternal life. So that's where we're going. And as I was thinking about how, what's, a, what's an illustration or some sort of way into talking about this, this difficult teaching, thought it over and thought it over, and I, and I came up with... I came up with bumper boats. And I was telling a friend of mine about this who's from the South, and they weren't exactly clear on what bumper boats are, so I have a picture of them. In case you're not from around a place where bumper boats happen, I grew up in Indiana where these things are everywhere. Um, I grew up, there was this lake uh, a couple hours away from where I lived called, called Redbrush Lake, and it was Redbrush Park in Seymour, Indiana, home of John Cougar Mellencamp. And uh, I used to go there every year, and they had, these, they had the bumper boats. And you usually find these things at a water park or a lake resort. They're these round inner tubes, plastic seat in the middle. And then there's this small outboard motor that you control with, with a handle that works kind of as a tiller and as a throttle. And are you familiar with these things? You are, right? Like, okay. You, you can smell the gasoline when you're walking up. And then there's this impossibly tan kid that appears who works there and he's running the thing and he's kind of just moving from boat to boat with this sort of grace as though he, he could walk on water. And then 15 or 16 of you get loaded into these things and you climb in, sometimes there's a harness maybe, and 
there are some who are getting in the boats who have done this so many times they know which ones are the good ones. The, the boats are all numbered and they know like 11, uh, 22, stay away from eight. They, they know this kind of stuff, right? And they, and they get into them. And then other people are climbing in and they've never done this before in their lives. And what's about to happen is chaos. And it's always the same thing. You've got the super competitive person who's just got the eye of the tiger and they know that what they're going to be doing for the next eight minutes is winning. They're gonna dominate. They're intended to swamp the frightened, giggling 12-year-old girl who's nervous. And then you have the father who has his little one and they're climbing in together. And what he's hoping for is a fun little tool around the water corral. But then there's the team. And that's the two or three that are there together, and they're going to work together to try to ruin the experience that that father wants to have with his little kid. And so they're just all over him, and the child now is crying. And then there's always the one kid who's off to the side, just going in circles, <laughs> making themselves just dizzy for eight minutes. And it's all they really want to do, and everybody leaves them alone. No one is good at bumper boats. No one. As much as you thought it was just a matter of mastering the craft, they're just impossible to control. And so what you have with bumper boats is you have a group of people who are set down in a particular place for the purpose of just careening into one another until mercifully, eight minutes later or so, that impossibly tan kid sounds a horn and everybody starts to zigzag their way back to the weathered dock and then they gracelessly climb out, losing all dignity, and head for the terra firma. You're there, right? You with me? When I read the Gospels, I get the sense that from the religious people Pharisees, the Sadducees, to the sinners and the tax collectors, and everything in between, that it's a world of people just trying to find their way. It's strangers in bumper boats, and nobody's good at it. Nobody's good at it. And so we fill the time. We fill the time with strategies that we're making up on the spot, or trying to apply ancient strategies that nobody has mastered. And then Jesus enters the scene, only he's not adrift. He knows what he's doing. And so when we read a passage like the one we read today, Jesus is not just another guy in a bumper boat careening into people and trying to find his way. He knows what's happening, and he's asking very pointed questions, and the words that are coming out of his mouth are very focused with the intent of getting people to respond and to react and to think in ways that we need to respond and react and think. Why? Because here in John 6, he's at the beginning of something. He's at the beginning of his earthly ministry. And he knows that this is an earthly ministry that is going to lead to salvation for people. So he knows what he's doing. And the people around him, they're just trying to figure out how to live here. But he's there to give them life. That's why he's there but they're gonna to have to learn. They're gonna to have to learn a new way to understand who they are 
in the world. They're going to have to learn who they are to God, a new way to think. And that's what the text is about. That's what Jesus talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood is about, is he's pushing on a point. How do we get there? How do we get to the passages that we just read, the verses that we just read, where he's looking around and people are leaving in droves and he's looking at his own disciples and he's saying, are you going to leave too? How do you get to that point? I want to take us through, just very briefly, John chapter 6. Just this one passage, this one chapter of scripture. You notice that we read verses 60 to 70. That's a long chapter in the Bible. John 6 is a long chapter, and it, and it has so much going on. Things that you know about, but you may not know are actually all together here in this particular chapter of Scripture. So how do we get here? Because John 6 gives us this great picture of people trying to figure out how to live in this world, like a bunch of strangers in bumper boats. So let me walk you through it. The chapter opens with Jesus as a celebrity. He's famous. He's famous for miracles, for teaching, and the reason that we know he's famous is because there are great crowds that are flocking around him. They want a piece of him. They want to hear him teach. They want to see him perform signs and wonders. And so they're there. They've heard about all of this. People want to be around him, and we might think, oh, that's good. That's good. You want that. You want Jesus to present himself in such a way that people want to be around him. All right, he's doing well now. Well, let's see. This crowd of around 5,000 people assembles to hear him teach, and then he miraculously feeds them with a few loaves and fishes. Who's he feeding? He's feeding Israel. He's feeding Israelites, Jewish people. What's a huge part of their story? A huge part of the people of Israel's story involves the miraculous provision of bread, manna. And so as Jesus is taking a few loaves and fishes and is distributing it, and it's just unending, and everybody's getting bread, everybody realizes we're being fed miraculously. They understand that Jesus is giving them manna. Now, it wasn't the same manna, but it was the same situation. Bread from heaven. The other thing we have to keep in mind, it wasn't just that Israel had this long memory of being fed with a miraculous supply of bread. But we also have to remember the era, the time in which they lived. And this was a time when food acquisition was a lot of work and it was not always guaranteed. Pestilence and famine were real things. Food itself was a universal vulnerability for people. And so here you have this crowd being given bread from nowhere. And in their amazement, they get to thinking, you know what we should do? We should make him our king. Because if Israel had a king who had endless and immediate stores of food, we would never lack again. 
And we wouldn't have to live with that vulnerability that would make a person ever pray, give us this day our daily bread, because we would know that's covered. They would be set and they would be powerful. Jesus knew that they wanted to make him king and he knew why they wanted to make him king. And so he backs away from this situation. He sends his disciples, this is all still John 6, he sends his disciples out in a boat. He says, go ahead and cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I'll see you in a minute. And then he stays behind so that the crowds won't follow the boat. And he waits for nightfall. And he walks out to the boats on the water. John chapter 6. One of the most ubiquitous things we know about Jesus' miracles is he walked on water. The feeding of the 5,000 led to the walking on the water. It's connected. And the crowds are searching for him. And when they find him on the other side of the sea, they want to talk about two things. How'd you get here? And can we keep talking about that bread? And Jesus tells them, you want to make me your king, but you don't really want me. What you want is the bread. You want what I can give you. You want this, this food, but not me. And of course that's what they want. That's not a gotcha moment. Of course that's what they want. They want to know that they have what they need. But then the next day, Jesus is back in Capernaum, and this conversation is continuing because they still want to know about the bread. They want to know, is there more of this? Can you just keep doing this? And that's when Jesus says to them, I am the bread. He doesn't say, I have the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. And this they do not appreciate. And the reason they don't appreciate this is because they understand when he says that, that he is comparing himself to Moses and he is elevating himself above Moses because Moses had the bread of life. And Jesus is saying, I actually am the bread of life. You're looking at it. They don't like that. And so they say in John chapter six, you're familiar with this too. Isn't he from Nazareth? Isn't this Joseph and Mary's boy? He's talking kind of big. And that's when Jesus says this. I'm going to read to you John 6, 48 to 56. This is Jesus doubling down and making this difficult conversation even more difficult. He says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. If you're uncomfortable with that, he goes on. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You okay? You okay with that? How does that sit with you? They're saying, just help us figure out how to live here. Help us be better at the bumper boats. And Jesus is saying, you're not meant to drift in chaos. You're meant to rest on solid ground. You can only do that abiding in me. One of the reasons Jesus is pressing into this is because he has people who are saying, I'm a disciple of yours. When in fact what they are is they're disciples of their idea of him. And he's forcing that issue. It's a hard teaching because Jesus is testing people who might consider themselves to be his disciples, but they're really just devotees to their idea of who he might be for them. And so he's pushing against it. And we do this all the time. People do this all the time. We form ideas of who Jesus is and then we follow that idea. But here Jesus is saying, I'm not an idea. I'm not an idea to follow. I am where life itself is found and it is only found in me. And so everybody claiming to be Jesus' disciple here will have to decide what to do with what he says about himself. And some of what he says about himself, many are going to find intolerable and they are going to leave. That's a long preamble to get to our text today, but it helps us understand what's going on here. It gets us to the heart of things. What Jesus says initially is confusing. What, you want us to eat your flesh and drink your blood? Before the service is over, we're coming to the communion table, by the way. As it becomes more clear, it becomes for some even more untenable. Because he's saying what you think you need most is bread. Which you think I can give you. But what you really need most is me. Jesus just compared himself to Moses. The people scoffed at him. And then he doubled down and he said, no, I am the bread from heaven. And they needed to be fed by his flesh and his blood. It's grotesque. It's extreme. And they start to reject his words. And as they do that, he goes even further in a way that kind of says, you thought that was hard to hear. Listen to this. And then he says that he will be exalted when he is taken up into heaven. Why is that offensive? because he's comparing himself to another character in the Old Testament who was on the same level as Moses in the minds of the people of Israel. Another character in the Old Testament whose death was similar to the death of Moses. Remember when Moses died, God himself buried him in a secret place that no one knows about on Mount Nebo. God took Moses out of this world discreetly. The other Old Testament character is Elijah. The other one that God took out of this world in a mysterious way in this chariot of fire, up he goes. And nobody knows. Jesus is comparing himself to Elijah here. And he's saying that he is going to ascend into heaven before their eyes. They're gonna see it. How are you processing the Jesus that I'm describing here? Do you wish he would temper his approach? Maybe soften it a little bit so that it's 
easier to get on board with, maybe, maybe be less insistent on our desperate need for him, maybe be a little bit more inspirational. Just inspire us more. In verse 63, he tells us why he's leaning into such a hard teaching. And he says this, it is the spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and in life. There's spirit in their life. See, we go through this life in this world looking to the things of this world to guarantee our survival and to guarantee our peace. We look to money, we look to food, we look to sex, we look to our own bodies, we look to vocational satisfaction, we look to land, we look to personal freedoms, and here is the hard teaching of the gospel. Nothing in this world can satisfy your soul apart from Christ. Nothing. For how long will you test that? You may be here, and you may be saying, I'm done testing it. I am ready to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Or you may be saying, I've got a few more years in me. I've got a few more years of fight. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, these words are words of life that you need me more than you need the bread I can give you. You need me. Why are they words of life? They're words of life because they're true. And ultimately, any other pursuit of peace or deep meaning concerning your existence in this world is going to end in frustration and despair. People couldn't accept this truth then. We can't accept it now. Unless God is at work drawing you to Christ. He says it in verse 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And so I would be remiss if I didn't just ask the question, is God at work in your life drawing you to Christ? Is he? When Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father, is it being granted to you? Are you being drawn to him? Is he drawing you to life? He may be. He may be. If you think he is, he probably is. Otherwise, why would you be thinking it? Our text says, after this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I promise I'm going to stop with the bumper boats in a minute. But I have to say one more thing that I haven't mentioned yet that's just a truism of the bumper boat world. And that is that often, over the course of a day, one of the boats is just going to fail. The motor's going to die. It's going to run out of gas or something's going to break. And there's going to be some poor kid just stuck out there in the water, bobbing, 
without any means of navigating his way back. And when that happens, suddenly, somebody appears in another boat and they come out to you and they tether your boat to theirs and they pull you through. Peter understood that when Jesus asked the 12 if they would leave too. To whom shall we go? Jesus, you alone have the words of life and we have come to believe you're the Holy One of God. Peter understood that without Jesus, he was adrift in the chaos. But Jesus had come to pull them into the life that they were meant to know. One that would not be sustained by bread alone, but by him. And by the word of his power and the word of his love. And so when Jesus talks about himself as the bread on which we must feed, he's pulling us into a mystical and intimate union with him where he gives us more than bread for us to just go off and eat alone. But he gives us life. The very life that is in him, he gives to us. I don't know where you are with any of this, but let's notice the moment that is captured in this passage, because I love this moment. This wasn't a planned moment for Simon Peter. Something happened, Jesus asked him a question, he responded. People are walking away, Jesus says, are you gonna walk away too? I love what Peter doesn't say. What Peter doesn't say is, he, he doesn't say, no way, I'm not gonna walk away from you because I see so clearly who you are and I have all the information that I need to know that I am right to follow you. Instead, what he says is, where else can I go? He looks at the options before him and he understands that even though he can't see everything with clarity, he knows that there is a path to stability and life and that every other road is gonna to lead to chaos. And so he chooses the road to life because it is to him the best option in front of him. Where else is he gonna go? And I love that because it is an honest expression of a developing faith. And it may be all you have. I can't see everything, but I see enough. Is the Father drawing you to Christ? Let me pray. Lord, when we read these passages of scripture, we see a Jesus who is not afraid to say things that make people wanna walk away from him. Because he's saying things that we have to understand are true, that we're not meant to be adrift in chaos, but we're meant to be in a place where we are stable, where the ground is firm, where the provisions that we need are there, where the one who gives us life is somebody that we are joined to and not just somebody that we have access to. And so, Father, we thank you for this. Lord, we, we, we confess that we see through a glass dimly in this world. 
But one day we will see fully and we will understand fully. Any expression of faith we have in this world is incomplete. And yet, Lord, you, cause us, you call us to trust in you. For any here who you're calling to yourself, let them know that that's what you're doing and give them life in your name. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.